Welcome to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. This is our walkout reaction podcast. We are recording this uh, starting at 4.30 on Thursday afternoon, August 27th. After the Milwaukee Bucks chose last night to not play their game against the Orlando Magic. Uh, Games tonight, including game one of the second round series between the Boston Celtics and Toronto Raptors, is postponed. Uh, and we were planning to get together and talk about this game later tonight. But because of the walkout, which some Celtics players have been prominently involved in, we are reacting to that instead. I'm Adam Otenko here with my twin brother, Josh. How's it going, Josh? Yeah, different tone today. Definitely important to know when to be serious, when to to kind of slow down. And there's definitely a somber feeling today. Uh, everything felt different when I woke up today. You know, we we kind of expected this. We had heard some things about how this was going to happen. Um, we talk a lot about what our role is in this podcast, and typically we try to stick to um, to responding to the games um, because racial justice has been prominently involved in sports as of late, and in and because of the pandemic and the the, um, the stoppage of play for a few months, um, we we chose to to speak a little bit about that. This is the first major walkout in American sports history to happen this way. Gave, games have never really been canceled in this way. I, I heard Len Elmore said the closest he can think of is the um, games being canceled after Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy assassinations but that this is different and unprecedented because it it is led by players. Yeah, you had players, Bill Russell, one of them, you know, coming together back in the day with the, in the '60s, Muhammad Ali, um, the running back for the Browns, Jim, Jim Brown. Brown. Yeah, you know, the, there are players like that who have been outspoken for a long time. Um, those players were not multimillionaires. You know, Muhammad Ali was making money off of his fights and was probably the wealthiest of those but you know the salary for an nba player back in the late 60s and early 70s was not the same as it is now it's it's a little different now when you have multi multi-millionaire black men trying to raise awareness for this human rights issue bill russell tweeted today in 1961 i walked out of an exhibition game much like the nba players did yesterday i'm one of the few people that knows what it felt like to make such an important decision I'm so proud of these young guys. It reminded me of this. And then he posts an article where he states in the article that he would happily give up basketball if it would uh, assist the civil rights movement and ease racial tension to aid Negroes at the time. So we're going to be talking about this today. We're going to talk about racial justice a little bit. We're going to talk about civil disobedience, which I have some background in. We're going to talk about um, what's been happening in the NBA and, and in relation uh, to the larger world, what the context is of that. And we're going to try and bring it back to, to Boston, to the Celtics as much as possible. But just, just to recap really quickly, in, over the last week, we started hearing about a protest uh, related to the Raptors-Celtics game one. I believe it was on Monday, mostly with the Raptors speaking about it, but a couple Celtics mentioning it also. Um, this is in the wake of the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, this also the context also includes 
a white supremacist shooting and killing a couple of um, protesters in Wisconsin. The Republican National Convention is happening at the same time. Um, and, and I mention all of that because um, the, so for example, the Republican National Convention, the, the Republican Senate uh, in, in Wisconsin, um, the president is framing the election in terms of saving American cities uh, from what he what is being described as the, basically they're stoking fear using these protests in American cities, protests that are aimed at racial equality. The NBA players are seeing all of this. They have televisions. They are watching this. They likely saw the vice president make a law and order pitch as part of the convention last night. Um, and this is also coming out of their experience of being in this bubble. They are, they're seeing people, they're, they're people, uh, black and brown people being shot by police and they are stuck in a hotel room. They can't go hug their kids. They can't uh, explain it to them in person. They can't uh, be with their families uh, and get a lot of the support that people typically do when they experience traumatic events. Um, so the Bucks decide to walk out uh, the Orlando Magic, the other team, didn't know it was happening, um, and and the Bucks received a little bit of flack for that in this players' team meeting that came afterwards. the The other games uh, were canceled as well. Games tonight are canceled. The players have voted at this point in time. They voted to resume the season, but it's unclear whether that is going to happen tomorrow on Friday or Saturday. Um, but as a result of the Bucks walking out, they their owner called. Uh, leadership in that state, and and it was important that Milwaukee did this because the shooting happened in Mil in Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Um, and, but within an hour or two, the Bucks are talking to the district attorney, the lieutenant governor. They called for the government there to reconvene the Senate to address the Jacob Blake incident. Now, it's a Democratic-led Senate, so the people they're talking to are Democrats. Um, the Republicans have majority in the Senate there, so it's unclear what will happen as a result of that. But this is an example of when people say, well, what do the players want? What's the, the purpose of walking out? There are multiple purposes, but one of them in this case is they actually are able to get an agenda item moved forward in a way that supports the needs of them and their community. And it's important to note that Milwaukee Bucks player Sterling Brown was a victim of police brutality about a year ago uh, by the Milwaukee police. You know, so this team has a player on it who personally has experienced this exact issue that they're fighting for. Um, the state of Wisconsin is just a representative representation of what's being asked in a lot of states and with a lot of police forces. And you know, Adam has used some words already on this podcast that that I've been trying to avoid words like Democrat and Republican. Like I'm, I'm trying to have this be about a black lives issue, about uh, freedom, about uh, human rights violations and, you know, not get too political because as basketball fans, at least we, you know, no matter what our politics are, hopefully we can all stand behind the players that we watch on TV, um, our entertainment and see that they're hurting and feel for them regardless of politics you know we almost didn't want to do this podcast today because of the the issue of mixing basketball with politics um and you know adam you were telling me earlier it's unavoidable at this point 
Yeah, I'm coming from a place that we're following these athletes. We're talking about these people, and they're they're not just uh, laundry, as Seinfeld would say. They're not just uniforms. These are people that are struggling right now and have the power to use the platform that they have and the opportunity to play or not to influence other people. And they are doing that. And so that now is what we are talking about. And for them, it is inextricably linked from politics. Uh, let me just share a little bit right? So of what, what people are saying. So, so Jalen Brown has been at the forefront of this. I mean, he, he stood up in the players' meeting reportedly and said, if we are going to stop playing and we're going to leave the bubble, what are you going to go do? Are you going to go be with your family or are you going to be in the streets protesting? Are you going to be trying to change policy? He wants to go protest. He is saying things like, the question that I would ask is, does America think black people or people of color are uncivilized, savages, or naturally unjust? Are we products of the environments that we participate in? That's the question I want to ask America. And America has proven its answer over and over and over again. Are we not human beings? Is Jacob Blake not a human being? He tweets that, his, he wears the number seven and he sees people wearing his jersey. And now number seven, every time he see, looks at his jersey, he sees a black man being shot seven times, which is what happened to Jacob Blake. Marcus Smart talked earlier this week about survivor's guilt. He feels like while he cannot, he, he cannot avoid being black in America, he as a wealthy black man can choose to, to add some protection to himself that other members of, of the community do not have. It, being in the bubble is difficult for people. Jason Tatum told Malika Andrews, when you are in this bubble, you can't go protest. You can't hug your family. We feel like we are sitting on the outside watching and we're helpless right now. There is something happening in this country right now that matters to the black community and clearly now after a long time, matters to a community outside of the black community. Uh, and the players feel like while they're playing, it's hard to feel like they're a part of it while they're in the bubble. And they're getting tired of this. And again, the backdrop of the, the, the way that the Republican National Convention is framing black and brown people and the vocal protests, which are mostly nonviolent, for change, for justice to be treated by the police for example, to be treated by the police as uh, anybody else expects the police to treat them. Um, that is being responded to with, with stoking fear, with basically saying this is a pivotal, this election is a pivotal point to be able to save a certain way of life, to, to protect cities or, the, or um, suburbs. And they are framing black and brown people in a, in a negative light. That is how the players are perceiving it. I mean, that's personally, that's how I am perceiving it. You may view it differently, but if you're following these athletes, uh, you, it, it is important, even if you disagree with them, it is important to understand where they are coming from because they stopped playing. The thing you were following them for, they said, no, I'm not going to give you that anymore. So there is a, uh, a piece of resistance here. They are taking action that is increasing as civil disobedience. Um, I, I'm ready to jump into that stuff, Josh, but, but I wanted to just stop for a moment and see if there was anything else you wanted to bring up. 
There's a lot. Um, keep going. I'll, I'll have my opportunity. So I think for these athletes, this is not just a basketball conversation. It's a conversation about racism in America. It's a political conversation. There is a historical context for them. This country was founded on, on land stewarded by Native Americans who were subjugated and in, in, in what can easily be described as a genocide. This is a country that was built on the backs of slave labor. Uh, many of these players are descendants of those slaves. Uh, and and they experience the results of slavery, of Jim Crow, of the civil rights movement, et cetera. And what they are doing, whether they are fully conscious, whether all of them are fully conscious of it or not, is they're participating in political action in a way, in a nonviolent way that, but but still powerful way that is centuries old. And that actually has roots in Massachusetts. Uh, if you are following the Celtics, I assume you have a connection to the Boston area. You may have gone to Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, where Henry David Thoreau famously lived in a house by himself in nature. Immediately after he came out of that, he's also famous for, for not paying taxes. Uh, they actually they came to him when he was uh, towards the end of his time living at Walden and asked for years uh, of taxes going back, and he refused, and then he was put in prison and then bailed out by an aunt. Um, but he then comes out and starts speaking about how if the government is unjust, that it is the, the public's responsibility to not support that government, in this case, paying taxes. And there were two things that he was impassioned about at the time. This is in 1848, I think, 1849. This is pre-Civil War. The two things were slavery. He was an abolitionist. And the other was the Mexican-American War. Um, and he spoke about not supporting a government that's, that, that treats uh, their citizens in a way like a government that has owns slaves does, like in a, in a country that owns slaves. And he spoke to northern cities, uh, in, in, including in, in the Boston area, basically saying, you, just because you disagree with this, that's not enough. And, and just because there aren't slaves right now in Massachusetts doesn't mean that it's the south, the south's fault. It's not just the slave owners. It's also the mill towns and the companies that are producing uh, things with the cotton that is picked by slaves. That they have just as much a responsibility to act uh, in resistance to what they believe is wrong. He was incredibly impactful. Mohandas Gandhi, who uh, removed British rule of India, he was informed by Henry David Thoreau. Nelson Mandela was informed by Henry David Thoreau. Martin Luther King was informed by Henry David Thoreau. Uh, King read Thoreau when he was studying, I believe, at BU. Uh, and that had an impact on, like, for example, the, the buzz boycott in, in 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, where a 15-year-old, Claudette Colvin, refused to give up her seat. Nine months later, they decide to use the buses as a way to boycott. But they had nine months to plan, and that was a coordinated effort. And the work of Gandhi, he called his, his nonviolent movement Satyagraha, which means love force. And what that meant was that this was, this was action that was being taken out of love. Doc Rivers came out the other yesterday and said it is amazing for him to watch how Black people continue to love this country 
and this country does not love them back. And Gandhi's theory basically, and the theory of nonviolent resistance is basically, you ask for what you need from the powers that be. If you don't get it, you take some action that has a negative impact on the government, on the status quo. You take a knee when the anthem is being played, as Colin Kaepernick did. And then you say, hey, I'm doing this for this reason. Here's what I need. And usually the response is not, okay, great. It's no, you can't have that. As the response was, why don't you stand for the flag? Why don't you support our troops? That was the response. So then you do something that is larger. You protest in the streets, as people have been. And you, you keep escalating and then trying to negotiate. And if you don't get what you need, you escalate some more. And we, have, we saw that in the discussions to uh, create the bubble. Kyrie Irving and others wanted to not play. And they worked uh, out an agreement with the owners where, and the NBA where players could ha have things written on their jerseys, where Black Lives Matter was written on the court. Uh, Adrian Wojnarowski said in his podcast today that he knows that Adam Silver told him that not all owners were enthusiastically in support of having Black Lives Matter on the court. What we saw yesterday was a continuation of this. As people continue to get shot by the as Black people continue to be shot by the police, as reforms are not made, as change is not happening, as they see the context uh, in the political system not supporting their communities. They and feeling like they're not doing enough to impact it, they are feeling the need to increase that action. And I, I mean, to me, what happened yesterday was pivotal. That was a significant event. The NBA, the you know, the Milwaukee Bucks canceled their their game. Other teams followed. Other sports followed. Uh, and and it's and it's continuing on. And and honestly, I'm actually a little bit surprised that they're continuing to play. But I think something is going to come out of this meeting this afternoon with the owners that is going to increase the action that owners the uh, and the, the ability for both players and the league to leverage their platform, their power, to see policy uh, and, and more structural changes in society. Um, and so we may see things like what matters is the, the action around police reform, action around political reform, action around um, prison reform, uh, encouragement and, and action to, to allow people to vote. The arena in, in Houston where the Rockets play is going to be turned into a voting space for people. I saw a tweet that the Celtics, that that would be difficult for them to do because the Celtics don't actually own the garden. It's owned by another company. So they would need to make that decision. That's what's happening here. Uh, the players have voted to restart, and that will happen Friday or Saturday. But I don't think that that's going to be the end of it necessarily. And there's a lot of complicating factors here. But I just want to give that context to uh, around what the players are doing in the broader context of, of this country and of political movement. You know, the comments by Doc Rivers, he's the son of a police officer. You know, there's people, sons and daughters of police officers who are feeling the same way that NBA players are feeling right now. You know, Adam, you and I were talking earlier about like, why now? Why is this tipping point happening now? Um, I can remember four years ago around this time, I was 
uh, still in the midst of my co- my college basketball coaching career. I coached for a decade at the college level, and I wanted to impact our team, mostly young African American men, to vote. And you know, it was seen. My request as the lead assistant coach and recruiting coordinator to my head coach was seen as um, a bit of a distraction and not what we are here for. You know, we don't need to get into politics. We don't need to create or see the differences that we have amongst our team. What we need to do is come together. And I actually agreed with that at the time. You know, you're right. This is about basketball. This is about getting on the same page. And the best way to do that is to take all of the distractions you can find and remove them so that we can just get together as a unit, become brothers, and and go out there and be able to communicate on the court like brothers so we can play at a championship level. And our team was able to do that. Four years before that, I was coaching a team. And uh, again, at the college level, I had two of my players they were arrested for murder in the town. You know, I've known many basketball coaches, networked with thousands of basketball coaches, and very few of them have had that experience. And as a coach, you know, I felt helpless. And the police in the town were breaking laws in their investigation of the crime. Um, They were, my two players were later convicted. They were sentenced to life without the opportunity for parole and um, whether they did it or not to take an 18 year old and say, you have no opportunity for parole, you know, and, and this, and this is a person who comes from a very difficult upbringing, um, foster youth with, you know, no attachment to mother or father and, you know, no guidance. And, um, no matter what side of the spectrum you fall politically, I can just speak from my experience that watching this and watching how the police handled it um, and watching the illegal searches and seizures, guns drawn, 8 a.m. 8 a.m. at other players' houses, you know, going in. Who were unrelated um, take, to the act? Unrelated to the act. Um, taking phones without uh, warrants to search of other players. You know, doing their investigation, obviously the police need to investigate crimes and they need to get to the bottom of what happened. I totally understand that. Um, well, look, look but, when, you, when you talk about <laughs> um, convicting two people of murder and then, uh, you know, I, I'm i not going to necessarily agree with that they should never, that, that they, they deserve parole. Uh, you know, when I talk about criminal justice reform, I'm talking about, um, well, I mean, First, with police reform, I'm talking about things like training. Like the police are trained to always be in control of the situation. Um, they are not necessarily trained to de-escalate situations well, and that is sorely needed in these cases when unarmed black and brown people who have not done anything are assumed to be dangerous and uh, and and. And, and potentially violent where, and the police officer is trained to their job is to go home to their family at night. So if they need to shoot somebody who's dangerous, that's what they have to do. They're not necessarily trained to deescalate. And then when you add in that there's an implicit bias around uh, race in this country, that, that we perceive things 
not just as they are necessarily, but through a, a lens and a filter that we have that is based on our experiences, um, the media that we watch, the way that we were raised, uh, thing, our values, things like that. And those can be subjective and influenced. Black and brown men, especially in this country, are often seen as dangerous. Uh, that we know to be true. And it's inescapable in some ways to, to not experience that. But we have to acknowledge it, especially in a situation where you're a police officer dealing with somebody. And so I, I believe a lot of the reasons why this uh, police violence is happening is because of that implicit bias. I think players also want accountability. When a cop shoots an unarmed black man in front of his kids and nothing happens as a consequence, that actually hurts the, spe- the situation. It speaks volumes on who is protected and who is not. These are publicly funded jobs. Like Stan and Gundy had a great, great quote where he said, uh, the idea of blue lives matter. Police are not people because of their jobs. They choose to do these jobs. Their job is to protect people and not some people as opposed to others, but all people in the community. Um, And if they can't do that, that they, they shouldn't be doing that job. Um, in terms of criminal justice reform, it's it's things like um, fairness of sentencing laws. Crack should not have like a ten times the the time in prison as cocaine when it's basically the same drug, but clearly is directed at the populations using it in a way that is hurtful to some and easier on others. Or when somebody is comes out of prison, they should be able to vote again. Or they should be able to not have to put down that they're a felon on a, a job application for 10 years. That's sort of an idea that we need to have conversations about what is right there. If someone has completed serving their time, then they shouldn't still have the, the um, negative ramifications of the crime. Or else they should just continue serving that time. So, I, you know, if you're convicted of murder and, and you know... That's that's a whole different situation. It's it's a whole different situation. Um, the checks and balances for policing were not there, and in, and that's the reason I bring it up now, mm-hmm. uh, as well as just supporting, you know, why why it's so important and personally important to me that this is now finally connected. You know, uh, at a time when four years ago I couldn't get my team to to vote not one of them, you know, now I have a feeling they're all going to vote and they see the importance of the vote and it's directly connected, connected to people like them and their families. And I think voting is, is one of the outcomes that players want that, that has been mentioned. They want to encourage people to vote locally and nationally. And, you know, it's it's strange that we live in a country that the vote means so much, but only 32, 33 percent of the entire population actually does vote each year. You know, it's this is not just something for black and brown people, but, you know, all of us should be voting and helping to determine how we want the system to run better um, because the system's broken right now. This and, and that's that's really, you know, something that I want to ask you about, Adam, like to me, this feels obviously bigger than just these issues. You know, this is empowering the people who live in this United States to do something about what they believe um, when maybe they previously felt like their vote didn't 
count very much or there wasn't much that they could do. Um, and, and to me, it seems like structurally it's, it's about money. You know, like I've worked on many coaching staffs with people of all colors and we never really talked about w whether we're Democrats or Republicans, you know, you even like grabbing a beer, you know, we, we wouldn't ever, that never really came up. It wasn't about that. It was about, we're on the same coaching staff and, and we can, it, do, it didn't matter whether we were different in those ways or not. Um, and I think that there was a, a perception issue as well. Like if I'm speaking out that I'm one or the other and my boss is the other, is different from me, are they going to perceive me like I'm not trying to get fired over, you know, bringing in some potential, you know, what's looked like, what's looked at as a distraction, you know, my political leanings, whichever way they go. You know, I'm not trying to get fired over that. I don't want to be perceived that way. And so it kind of always comes down to money. Um, I'm not quite clear on what you mean by that. It comes down to money. It's, it feels like, you know, the, the boosters of the college team, you wouldn't want to, you know, make the team or anything about the sport political because you wouldn't want to lose their money, their contributions. Um, and even at a societal level outside of basketball, it feels like it's about money. Even, even getting a job as a police officer, you're paid very well. You know, sometimes it's, it's six figures depending on where you are. So, you know, these are, these are people who are choosing this profession because of the money. They're backed by systems that seem to me to be about the money. And that seems to me like as a root of, of a lot of this. Am I making any sense? Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not well versed enough to talk about structural inequalities economically related to racism in America, <laughs> but I can speak to, I mean, we, there, the money is a factor in this conversation for NBA players with owners. It has been about exactly. this restart. So that I saw that the, if the, if the players decided to cancel the rest of this season, that there would be 15 to 35% impact on revenue. So the NBA projects in a, in a good, like if this year had gone normally, they would have made a projected $8 billion. That gets split evenly with players, which is why you have $130 million team salaries. And I've seen a lot of people saying, well, the players want the owners to do more. What, what more do they want the owners to do? The owners committed to giving $300 million to causes to support these issues. That $300 million is over 10 years. So it's basically a million dollars per team, per owner, per year. And if, if the owners are making... It's, we don't know the actual net profit for NBA teams. They, that is a very closely guarded secret. They don't share it with the Players Association either, I believe. They just they share um, the revenue, the top line number, um, and that gets split. I think it's 50-50 now, or maybe 51-49 for BRI, basketball-related income, uh, that then goes to players through salaries. But the, the teams still have lots of other expenses uh, that they need to pay for. So after player salaries, it's about $130 million per, per owner that they make um, with, without then deducting. I'm getting into 
accounting. This is like the most boring thing people could listen to. <laughs> but the, the owners make a lot more money than the, the $1 million that per year that they're giving to these causes. There's a lot more they can do as, as evidenced by the way that the Milwaukee owner responded. They've got connections. These are, these are very wealthy people. They're politically connected. They can have an impact in tandem with the players uh, in, in making a difference. And I think the players want that. There's also the issue of of what happens if they cancel this season. So recently, and there's been some some very important under-the-radar news that we will talk more in-depth about on another podcast, but around the collective bargaining agreement, around negotiations about next season, they're, they're going to postpone the start of next season, which was supposed to be December 1st. They're going to postpone the draft. Uh, and more, more recently, they and, and free agency, more recently, they postponed the decision that the owners have about whether to tear up the collective bargaining agreement. The owners have a clause in the, in, in the uh, CBA that allows them to say, you know what, we're not making any revenue or revenue is impacted enough that we need to completely rewrite this thing. And they have now, I think twice now, postponed through negotiations with the Players Association. They both agreed nobody wants to tear up the CBA, but they've postponed that decision. It was supposed to be in mid-September. It's now going to be, I, I think it's, October or maybe even November at this point. And they're pushing all of this back because they want to see what is going to happen with COVID. Is there going to be, do, do they need to do another bubble, which loses 40 million, uh, 40% of, of that $8 billion revenue is lost when you don't have in-person games, you lose concessions, you lose ticket sales, et cetera. Nobody wants to, to do a bubble again if you, if you can avoid it. So they're hoping that vaccines and whatnot will allow them to have players, uh, to have fans in the stands that, that allows them to recoup some of that 40% loss. Um, but that, you know, that's, to me, that's looking unlikely. And at some point, I assume you have your TV contracts where they needed the, the 70 or 72 game threshold to be hit in for most uh, of the teams to get paid by the the tv uh broadcasters uh, which is why they had those those um initial games in the bubble was to hit those numbers i assume at some point if you push the season back far enough you ke- still can't fit those 70 something games in so at some point they're going to need to decide either we're doing another bubble or it or we know that we can have a, a, a more normal season if the nba players do not complete this season the financial impact is large enough that the owners will reconsider tearing up that CBA and you might not have basketball again for a year or so. Uh, and that is something, you know, that the owners have been very supportive and the league has been incredibly supportive of players in the decision to, to do the bubble in the decision to, to speak up about racial justice, the way that they've done in the bubble. And now with the cancellation of these games, but in these conversations, the owners are also reminding officials from the Players Association that this there is going to be a financial impact of doing this that is not going to be good. And, and I think part of the reason that the players have now voted to continue the season is related to that. I think a lot of, a lot of these players are donating the money that they're making in the bubble to these causes. They know that having wealth also translates to power. And that they have influence over these issues because of that power. It was interesting. Jackie McMullen had an article that just came out on, on ESPN about Michael Jordan, who is the owner's representative 
to the Players Association, that, and he's the one majority owner of a team who is African-American, he basically told the owners, now is the time to listen to the players. We need to listen first. And then we can share what we have to say here. But he has been a voice of reason, which is fascinating to me because of Michael Jordan's lack of public speaking on political issues as a player. Uh, now, it was a different time then, but but he very clearly chose to... Um, yeah, we don't need to relive. You know, we we all saw the last dance. We all we all know about the Republicans buy sneakers to comment for Michael. Right. You know that Michael Jordan recently gave a hundred million dollars um, personally to the Black Lives Matter movement over ten years. That speaks volumes about his uh, about face on these issues and his ability to affect change with his platform. It's different from LeBron. Uh, and the timing is different. The, the, the times are different too. So the public reaction may be very different. But LeBron has, you know, he, he's, when he came into the league, he stated very clearly that his goal was to be a global brand. Yep. And he has certainly done that. And there's been times where it's been interesting to see what he chooses to speak up on and what he doesn't. And he's been very, very vocal here uh, about, <laughs> about politics, especially. In LeBron's words, he said, We think you're hunting us to yeah. the police and to the politicians. Yeah, Doc Rivers, Robert Ori came out and spoke impassionately on TV last night, uh, tearing up, talking about how um, white parents do not have to sit their kids down at an early age and say, here is how you need to behave when you are stopped by the police or you engage with a police officer. You do exactly what they say. You put your hands up. You, sh- you tell them what you're going to do before you do it. Um, you have to you have to be incredibly careful. If you're a black parent listening to this, you know that you have that conversation with your kids. Um, and as Robert Ori said, the goal is for you to come home to me at the end of the day. And he said, I don't care if they put your face on the ground and they kneel on you or they beat you. Go to the hospital. At the end of the day, your job is to come home to me. Even if you are injured, even if you need medical treatment, whatever anger you are feeling, you have to. You cannot let that out. You come home to me at the end of the day. So tensions are high in this country right now. People are feeling uh, very strong emotions, whether it be depression over crazy personal experiences due to COVID, due to family illness, due to unemployment, um, or whether it just be feeling fed up over what's been going on politically here. And here at the Celtics Pride podcast, we... Uh, you know, we're sorry that we have to uh, not just focus on basketball here, but we're not sorry. You know, sorry, not sorry. It's come to a point. It's come to a point where where it's very difficult to separate these two things. The sport you all love that you're watching was was founded in a a PE class for women. This is a sport that has historically accepted females and males equally. This is a, a sport that has gained momentum and uh, become the fastest growing sport in the world over the last several decades, you know, on the concretes of our urban areas and our, our cities, mostly populated by people of color. And um, this is a sport that is now standing up for those people and trying to use that platform to protect lives that matter. 
and black lives right now are at the forefront of that. This is connected to Boston and to the Celtics as well. We've, we've mentioned Mark Spears' article from February 29th, 2020, about being a black player in Boston. If you have not read that, it's phenomenal. It's called From Russell to KG to Today's Celtics, Being a Black Player in Boston, Stories of African-Americans Playing in a City that Has Struggled with Racism. Uh, there is a long history uh, with the Celtics of both breaking uh, racial barriers in terms of drafting the first black player in the, in the NBA, but also uh, of some, some deep struggles in, in the city and four players from, from Russell to, to D Brown to others. Um, so I, I just want to end by saying, you know, that, that I think a lot of what players want is for people to get involved in support of the issues that matter to them. Uh, so vote, go vote. Vote locally, vote nationally, make sure you know how to do that in a way, especially in this election, where your vote will be counted. You can support causes with money. You can do so with action. Join protests, get in, involved in, in advocacy in your community. Contact your local representatives and ensure that they and the people that are enforcing laws in your community are supporting your views, especially in relation to black and brown and other marginalized people in your neighborhood, your town, your city, your state. Um, join an act. There's lots of ac action organizations for people who um, want to get involved with with the uh, racial justice movement. Start a book club with your friends discussing race, learning about what people's experiences are. Engage with people who are different from you, who think differently from you. That family member who's a little too racist, talk to them. That's your responsibility. Everybody needs to get involved for this. Um, so do do your part uh, in a way that works for you. And in a way that feels um, slightly uncomfortable for you, but doable. Uh, and, and let's all try and move things forward. And lastly, I think it's important to mention that it's amazing what we can learn from our children about what's fair and what's unfair. You know, you ask an unbiased child of any race and they'll tell you that we all should be treated equally. I mean, they, our children are sometimes our best resources and uh, as this movement moves forward, I think that our, our children are our hope uh, for a better future. Uh, so stay safe. We hope that everybody is um, healthy and hopefully we can get some change and get some basketball again soon. Thanks, everyone.